1: a little ohio mysteries business before we get started tonight i am happy to announce that we have launched a phone number if you'd like to call and leave us a feedback on our episode suggest another mystery or just in general tell us what a great job we are doing it is 234-738-0966 again that is 234-738-0966 we are looking forward to hearing from you and now on with the show listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of River Run Reprise, a jazz instrumental by Nick Frank, with the help of a dozen talented musicians from the Youngstown area. Nick is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Beacon Journal.
0: Hi, everyone. Steve, have you ever heard of the Giants of Seville?
1: Uh, no. Is this a baseball team?
0: it's not but if you haven't heard about it i am happy to be the one to tell you about it martin and anna bates were stars of the pt barnum traveling show back in the late 1800s they made headlines throughout the united states and even rubbed elbows with european royalty but since it was 150 years ago we won't be surprised if you haven't heard their story but what a story it is So let's just jump into this, and I'm going to start with Martin's story. He was born Martin Van Buren Bates on November 9, 1837, in Letcher County, Kentucky. He was the youngest of 11 kids, born to Farmers John and Sarah Bates. Now, Martin was a normal size at birth. His parents were average height, his siblings all average dimensions, but when Martin turned seven something remarkable happened. He grew so tall, so fast, his parents feared for his health. By the age of 12, Martin was over six feet tall and 200 pounds. Because Mr. and Mrs. Bates didn't understand what was happening, they prohibited him from working on the farm. They were so worried that exertion might hurt his abnormally large body. So young Martin turned to books. He studied history and he honed a really sharp intelligence. Meanwhile, he continued to grow. He didn't stop until he reached a height of seven foot nine inches, tipping the scales at 525 pounds. Not surprisingly, nicknames came with his extraordinary size. He was called the Kentucky Giant, the Giant of the South, Baby and Big Boy Bates. Now, all that book reading apparently inspired Martin to become a school teacher. and as a young man, he traveled to the Letcher County seat of Whitesburg for a required examination. He got a certificate and embarked on his teaching profession in a small log schoolhouse near the Bates farm. Many years later, one of his students said, and here's a quote for him, I never did care about obeying a teacher, but that big boy Bates was a fellow none of us ever wanted to sass. We didn't dare. Why, he was so big, his voice just sort of rumbled like a bull bellowing. But truth be told, Bates was an amiable guy that everyone, including his students, loved. Now, Martin's career as a schoolteacher is going to come to an end when the Civil War broke out in 1861. He joined the 5th Kentucky Infantry of the Confederate States Army as a private, but he was promoted up the ranks and eventually became a captain. Martin was a terrifying sight on the battlefield. He used two colossal seventy-one caliber horse pistols that had been made specially for him at the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond. He wore them strapped across his chest in black leather holsters. He had a saber that was 18 inches longer than the standard weapon. He rode a huge Percheron horse that he took from a German farmer in Pennsylvania. But he wasn't just show, he was substance. Martin was a very capable fighter. There were even communications recorded of Yankee soldiers talking about, and here's a quote, the Confederate giant who was as big as five men and fights like 50. Martin was wounded during the war at a battle around the Cumberland Gap area, and Lord knows how they did it, but Union troops managed to capture the giant in Pike County, Kentucky in 1863. He was taken to Camp Chase, that's the Confederate prison in Columbus, Ohio, and was later transferred to a camp in Maryland where, depending on whose account you want to believe, he either escaped or was freed in an exchange of prisoners. One story about Martin shows just how fierce he could be. During a leave from the battles, Martin returned home to learn that his brother had been kidnapped and tortured to death by some local men who supported the North. Martin gathered his men together, rounded up the eight suspects, marched them, their wives, and their children to a clearing, and hung all eight men while the families were forced to watch. Then Martin warned the families that if the bodies were moved before he returned, he would have his men hunt them all down and kill them. You know, those bodies hung there till Martin returned after the war in 1865 and gave permission to which was basically just now skeletons, most of them in heaps below the ropes where they had been hanging. After the war, Martin found the life of a school teacher in the backwoods of Kentucky to be way uneventful for him now. He may have also been concerned about living among those families whose men he had killed. He told his family he was tired of bloodshed and he was going to move somewhere where he could find some peace. And so Martin and his brother John traveled to Cincinnati and landed jobs in Robinson's Circus. John performed as a trick writer and a sharpshooter. Martin exhibited himself and read poetry to show off his education. Martin Bates was a true showman, winning fans for his gregarious personality. In time, he would count among his personal friends, President James Garfield and President William McKinley, both from Ohio. After several years of touring the eastern part of the country, Martin was visiting the New Jersey home of General Winfield Scott, when another visitor caught his eye. Her name was Anna Swan, And she was unbelievably one inch shy of being eight feet tall. She was a full two inches taller than Martin. Just like Martin, Anna had been born into an absolutely normal-sized family. Her other 12 siblings, all born to Nova Scotia farmers Alexander and Anna Swan, were all average dimensions. But Anna was different from the start. She was born in 1846, weighing 18 pounds, her poor mother. When she was just four years old, Anna was already tall and strong enough to carry two full buckets of water up the steep hill to their log farmhouse. Her father launched her showbiz career earlier, exhibiting her as the infant giantess. By the time she turned six, Her father had already rebuilt her bed several times. At eight, she was wearing her mother's dresses. Also like Martin, there was more to Anna than her size. She excelled in music and literature and knew all of the classics of her time. H.P. Ingalls, that was the scout for showman P.T. Barnum, first heard about Anna and tried to get her to sign a contract when she was still a teenager. It took a couple of years to convince her. When she realized people were going to stare at her all the time anyway, she figured she might as well make a living from it. In 1862, while Martin was fighting in the Civil War, Anna moved from Canada to New York to exhibit herself at Barnum's American Museum. He paid her $23 a week in gold, plus comfortable lodgings, the finest clothes, a private tutor, provisions for her mother to stay in New York, and occasional trips to Nova Scotia and back. Anna also received singing, acting, and piano lessons and made a lot of new friends. Among her closest friends were Tom Thumb and his wife, Lavinia. Tom Thumb was just two foot five inches, his wife a couple of inches taller. Now there was a terrifying moment in July of 1865 when a fire broke out at the American Museum's third floor, trapping Anna. The stairwell filled with flames and Anna couldn't fit through the upstairs window to escape. The staff saved her, by commandeering a crane and smashing the wall to enlarge the opening around the window, then lowering Anna to the ground by a pulley that was manned by 18 men. So now that you've met Martin and Anna, let's fast forward to 1871 when they met each other during that fateful trip to New Jersey. H.P. Ingalls talked the pair of them into joining an upcoming P.T. Barnum tour of Europe. And that spring, they set sail for Liverpool, England. During that long journey across the Atlantic, love blossomed. Martin proposed, Anna accepted, and in June of 1871, four months after meeting, The couple was married in a highly publicized wedding in London. Thousands of people turned out at St. Martin in the Fields Church at Trafalgar Square to try and catch a glimpse of the power couple jostling among newspaper reporters and society columnists. It was a remarkable ceremony. The bride made her way up the aisle behind a pair of harmonizing Siamese twins known as Millie Christine, the two-headed nightingale. Anna was dressed in a lace wedding gown given to her by Queen Victoria. Martin was in a blue coat, white waistcoat, and gray trousers. Martin and Anna had already met and charmed the queen, who had invited them to Buckingham Palace. In addition to presenting Anna with her wedding gown, Queen Victoria gave the couple two extra-large Diamond-studded gold watches, sized to fit their special wrist dimensions. They were reportedly the size of tea saucers, made of gold, studded with diamonds, and worth $1,000 each. A fabulous sum in that day. She also gave Anna a diamond cluster ring. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
2: Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: I probably should note that Martin and Anna weren't exhibited like some vulgar carnival freak show, as you might be imagining. Martin would usually read some poetry, Anna would play the piano, and then the couple might mingle with their paying guests, chatting politely and sipping tea. Sometimes they might perform a short play that was written around their size. The couple was a hit among London society. Liverpool Daily Courier wrote of Martin, he is a handsome, well-proportioned young fellow, neither weak-kneed nor round-shouldered, as well set up as any of Her Majesty's foot guards. The Daily Post added that Martin's conversation was that of a self-possessed and highly intelligent London gentleman. The Bates continued to tour Europe, playing every major city and occasionally returning to a residence they kept in London at 45 Craven Street, next to the busy Charing Cross Railway Station. At least three times, Queen Victoria asked them back to the palace, once to meet the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VII, the Grand Duke Vladimir of Russia, and Prince John of Luxembourg. And it was in London, on May 19, 1872, that the couple had their first child. Sadly, she was stillborn she weighed 18 pounds. The little girl wasn't given a formal name. A gravestone simply identified her as sister. But I don't know if she's under that marker anymore because it was later reported that the Bates allowed her body to go to the London Hospital so it could be studied for research into causes of gigantism. The loss of their child was a crushing blow, and on the advice of doctors, the Bates tried to distract themselves by traveling for pleasure, but eventually they decided it was time to return home. In July of 1874, they said farewell to England and sailed to America, and that's when they ended up in Seville, Ohio, a village in Medina County. They bought a 130-acre farm there and, for the first time, built an extra-large house to accommodate them in every way. The ceilings were 14 feet high, the doors almost 9 feet high, the furniture was built to order, And Martin commented that it was amusing watching visitors trying to make use of the oversized pieces, especially female guests who valued their dignity and tried hard to clamber on and off the giant chairs without showing their knickers. Martin had always wanted to return to his farming roots, and so he stocked the farm with the best breeds of cattle and draft horses. Old friends from the circus world would come to visit like the Siamese twins, Millie, Christine, Anna's good friends, Tom Thumb and Lavinia, and Isaac Sprague, who traveled with P.T. Barnum as the living skeleton. Martin and Anna also collected a few exotic animals, including a boa constrictor and a monkey called Buttons. Martin even trained a parrot to sit on the front porch and screech, Get off my property! at a neighbor that he didn't like. Martin's attempt to relax into an obscure farm life was interrupted. He overspent and probably invested in a few speculations he shouldn't have. And so the couple had to return to touring to pay the bills. They became the leading attraction of the W.W. Cole Circus from 1878 to 1880, That was a specially chartered train that took them around the mining towns of the American West. Keep in mind, this was the true Wild West, the era of Wild Bill Hickok, Jesse James, and the Indian Wars. It was during this time Anna became pregnant with their second child, and Anna returned to Seville for the birth. Unfortunately, the baby boy met the same fate as his sister. He was 22 pounds and nearly 30 inches tall when he was born on January 15, 1879. He looked perfect in every respect, but he only survived 11 hours. Like his sister, he was never named. His grave marker reads, Babe, and the Guinness Book of World Records names him as the largest newborn. Ever recorded. Martin later wrote that with the exception of the loss of their two babies, and here's his quote, our lot has been of one almost uninterrupted joy. At a time when most Americans lived their entire lives within 50 miles of where they were born, Captain and Anna Bates had seen the world. Now we know Martin had a mean streak in him if he wanted to cut loose. And reportedly, he got bad-tempered as he grew older. He walked with a cane and sometimes used it to hit people who displeased him. And Seville townspeople noticed he started wearing his old Confederate uniform around town, as if trying to provoke a reaction. He picked a few fights and was known to start an argument at the drop of a hat. But there were still flashes of that old good-natured side of him that won so many fans over. After church on Sunday, local children would gather around him to listen to that giant watch that Queen Victoria gave him chime the hour, or they would climb him like a tree to get the sweets he kept in his upper pocket. Anna, on the other hand, occupied herself with quilting bees, taught Sunday school, and was well liked by the farmhands and the house servants. Martin and Anna were married for 17 years before she died of heart failure in 1888, the day before her 42nd birthday. Martin ordered a 15-foot statue of a woman in Greek robes for their family plot at Mound Hill Cemetery in Seville. It took a decade before Martin found love again, marrying Annette Lavon Weatherby, the daughter of a Baptist minister. She was just over five feet tall and some 30 years his junior. Annette didn't want to live in that oversized house, so Martin sold the farm and moved to the center of Seville into a normal house with high ceilings on Main Street. Martin made it to the age of 81, dying of kidney failure at his home in Seville on January 19, 1919. That's right, his death date was one one nine one nine one nine. He was buried next to Anna. The only mystery here that remains is of the lost treasure variety. Author Wendy Coyle wrote about the Giants of Seville in her book Legends and Lost Treasures of Northern Ohio, and said after the Bates were gone, people found themselves wondering what happened to everything? They had no heirs, so what became of things like the diamond-steadied ring and the saucer-sized gold watches gifted by Queen Victoria? What happened to his Civil War memorabilia, his captain's uniform, those horse pistols, that extraordinarily long saber? What happened to their wealth and all the wondrous things they had collected on their world travels? There is little physical evidence left of their extraordinary lives. The large house that they had built on that Seville farm was torn down 70 years ago. And I found a story that said a historical group has possession of a pair of his shoes and an ornate helmet that he wore while riding in parades. Other than that, we do have photographs of the couple. And we're going to put some of them up on our website.
1: This is the segment of our program where we invite an Ohio Mystery listener to join us as our designated armchair detective.
0: Joining us tonight is Craig Brown, a listener from Gahanna, Ohio. How are you, Craig?
3: Great, Paula. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate Craig, it. where's Gahanna? Gahanna is just east of Columbus. It's where the, uh, the the big airport is. You know, we live right just up the road from the CMH airport, the John Glenn International, so...
0: Oh, great. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah.
0: And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: I I have uh, three daughters. They're all in their late 20s, early 30s. I have a couple of grandsons from them. And I've been married to my wife, Joan, since uh, 2005. So we uh, blended family, moved here to Gahanna, and just really love it. I work at the university. I work for the athletic department at Ohio State. And uh, just uh, hoping that we have a football season. <laughs>
0: Oh, we are all hoping that because we yes. need some entertainment and distraction in our lives.
3: So Absolutely.
0: Good luck with that. Now, the Giants of Seville. Have you ever heard of these guys
3: before? I had never heard of them before you had, uh, had mentioned it and sent this along to me.
0: Oh. All right. Well, I'm glad we're doing this episode then because I maybe because I used to work at the Medina County Gazette. You know they were very well known in Medina County, and I guess I just assumed everybody knew them. So clearly, we needed to share their story with everybody. What is your overall thoughts about their story? Was it? Did you find it fascinating?
3: It's very fascinating, and um, a lot of things you talked about with you know most people from that era didn't travel anywhere outside of fifty miles of their home, and um, here these guys went all over the world and met the queen of England and she held a wedding for them. And it's just, it's such a great story of even how they met, you know, it's just, it seemed to just kind of happen by chance, I guess. And it's, uh, it's wonderful that they got together and it just sounded like they had a fantastic marriage and they just really loved each other and were two peas in a pod, you know, with their height and their intelligence and just the way that they like to, uh, you know, read, recite poetry. And they were just uh, people of the world.
0: I loved hearing how they were not like this freak show that you would gawk at. You know, if you bought a ticket, you were really buying a ticket to spend the evening with them. And they were, you know, they would play some music or recite some poetry and and mingle with you. And maybe there would be a skit that they would put on that would kind of, you know, revolve around their height. But I I was glad to hear that.
3: I thought it was neat, too, that Martin... Even though he was from Kentucky and uh, served in the Confederate Army, you know, he, he was friends with Garfield and McKinley. I mean, how about that? that is, that's fantastic that he knew a couple of our Ohio presidents.
0: Yeah, this was a guy who really had different sides to him because you had that really, really cold-blooded story out of the war. Of course, his brother was killed that led him to go and kill those eight men. But we also had a lot of stories about how fun and gregarious and, you know, I saw one guy quoted as saying he just seemed to be a lover of humanity. Mm -hmm. And they clearly won a lot of friends with their charm.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's just uh, amazing that they uh, settled in Seville and stuff as well. I guess they, from what I had read that, One of the animal handlers with uh, Barnum's Circus or something was from Seville, and um, Martin visited him there at one point and fell in love with the town, and um, he invited Anna there to check it out, and that's why they decided that that's where they wanted to set down roots.
0: Well, you just added something I, I we didn't even say in the story. That's how they ended up in Seville.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it was just somebody that you know they knew in the circus that they were friends with, and just uh, I guess from what they said, Anna, it reminded her of her home in Nova Scotia. So, yeah,
0: is that how they got their monkey buttons and their both <laughs> from the animal handler?
3: Uh, probably, <laughs> I guess. You know, that's a boy. What a. Uh, what a cast of characters, too, that could you imagine in Seville in the 1870s, 1880s, just seeing all their friends with them in town. Um, Seville only had, what, less than 600 people at that time. I was looking up the census there. And, um, you know, they had the, the um, Siamese twins that came and visited them, and Tom Thumb and his wife. and. You know, that must have been quite the sight back then with uh, all those people in town just uh, going to see the Bates family.
0: What a treat for them to just see them riding on their carriage through town. I mean, I saw one comment somewhere where they said when Tom Thumb came to visit, when he was sitting in the carriage next to Anna Bates, it looked like she just was carrying a doll with her that she had a doll beside her i thought right. well, it probably did look like that
3: yeah i also uh, i read uh, that uh, martin sometimes would drive the carriage a little too fast sometimes and they were always worried that tom was going to pop out of the seat <laughs> uh, on the side of the road so she would have to tell him to slow down
0: and they yeah. probably had no seat belts back
3: then right yeah
0: uh the tragedy of them losing both their kids what what a shame
3: Yes, yes. Very, very, very unfortunate. And um, as you mentioned in your story, though, could you imagine (laughs) giving birth to a baby that one was 18 pounds and the other one was, what, 22, I guess. So um, those are very large babies. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's very strange that whatever affliction they had to, you know, if it was pituitary glands or something that Made them as tall as they were. It looked like it was passed at birth right to their children right away. Even though both uh, Martin and Anna were were large children when they were born, they they grew fast. But I don't think their parents really knew at that point that they were going to turn out to be almost eight foot tall in their adulthood.
0: Right. Although, I will say, in Anna's case, she was an 18-pound baby.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. And
0: her poor mother! Oh my gosh! In the 1800s, yeah. mm-hmm. before there was the medicine that we have today that could have eased that pain, I don't right. know how she survived that.
3: Yeah, and um, I, you know, I noticed also that they did start taking her to county fairs around Halifax and um, around Nova Scotia to some of the the smaller fairs and things. Just because they had to keep building bigger beds for her, they made clothes for her, but she also would grow out of her shoes just so often that, you know, it was putting them in the poorhouse, and they would get money from, you know, these fairs and stuff just to keep clothes on her back and, you know, make new beds for her and stuff. They They had to adjust their house for Anna to live there at that point, so... Really, when Barnum came along and offered her that place to stay and things, he really, he did her a huge favor because it just sounded like, you know, she was so comfortable there because she could be herself and she wouldn't have to walk down the street and everybody stare at her. She was in with everybody else that had differences and things at that time, and it was just home for her.
0: Did you see the movie The Greatest Showman?
3: I did not, no.
0: Okay, you've got to watch it now. Okay. Okay. Uh, Because it's it's fictional, but it's based off of P T Barnum and that American museum. Okay. And that museum even burns down just like the fire uh, in wow. this story. Yeah. But you get this wonderful sense of how these people who are just not really appreciated for their differences, it, you know, where they're born, but mm-hmm. coming together. And really feeling normal, like this, it's okay for them to be themselves. It right. was really, yeah. I I don't know what kind of guy the real PT Barnum was like, but at yeah. least in my fantasy of him, he did these people just an amazing, great favor, bringing them together and allowing them to be family together.
3: Absolutely, yeah, it's fantastic, and you know, he's basically the one that funded them to go to England and stuff anyway. And without that that ship ride across the ocean you know they might have never really fallen in love and you know decided to get married or something i guess so
0: absolutely and And it just you made a good point about how their babies seem to be you know have that gigantic gene in them when they both came from very normal parents you'd think that they might have at least had a 50 50 chance of having having a normal baby Oh, right whatever they had they did pass it on
3: right right and this is a uh just slightly off topic here too paula but one of martin's brothers lived to be 97 and he was married he was married three times and he had 24 children and the last one he fathered when he was 96
0: You are kidding! <laughs>
3: yeah, wow. Neat story, but yeah, I just I I found that as well, and it just yeah made me chuckle so.
0: I'm surprised that Martin lived as long as he did. I would have thought, being that big, there would have been extra stress on the heart and and anything else in his body, you know, the organs. But man, he lived to be an old man.
3: He really did, yeah, yeah. And uh, wow. just I'm talking about him walking down the street in his Confederate uniform in Seville as he, you know, got older. Just to, <laughs> I don't know, it was to provoke people, or, but. How can uh, like you know you what we're coming to at this point is um, how can some of his belongings like that just disappear? You know what what happened to that? Is he, an eight foot tall Confederate uniform has to draw attention somewhere? You know that you just <laughs> you wouldn't find that anywhere. So.
0: And I, you know I wonder if it exists. We just it's just not public knowledge because I can't imagine somebody coming across this stuff and getting rid of it I mean right you know not only that but his pistols his extra long saber uh, you know the jewelry the you know the watches you know mm-hmm. all of that stuff somebody has to have those right we just don't know who
3: right yeah and actually I sent a message to the Seville Historical Society on the, their Facebook page and just asked them if they you know had any knowledge of possibly what happened to it and they were told me that some of the jewels were sold to some of the local jewelers around Seville and um, (laughs) one of the I think even Martin's watch the one that you know the queen gifted to him you know I know I both of them got a watch and jewelry from her and things but um, it was Supposedly $1,000 in cost at the time because it was so full of gold and diamonds and things, but the jeweler supposedly sold it in 1923 for $150 to somebody. No. That's sad. Yeah, it's very, very sad. That's sad, but I can't believe you
0: found that out. What a yeah. nifty little piece of of history, yeah. but Still, wow.
3: It's out there somewhere, you know, and um, hopefully your show and somebody will start thinking about, man. Eh, now there's a very long sword hanging on my grandfather's wall and it's it's out of place and maybe that's martin's sword or uh, (laughs) yeah uh,
0: We wondered about these uh you know these extra large confederate slacks yes (laughs) look like they belong to a giant oh yeah
3: and it is yeah it's just very sad that how much stuff of his disappeared you know i guess even martin had a custom car built for him after he married um Annette Levon Weatherby, I think the, you know, his second wife after Anna had passed away and uh, he had a um, custom car built by this place called the Craig Toledo automobile factory in Toledo in 1906. And it was made oversized so that he could drive it and stuff. So I found a picture of him in the car with his, with his second wife and um, thought that was really neat too. So what happened to that car?
0: oh that is cool wow wouldn't that be a find today
3: yeah you know
0: that scrap somebody didn't say that
3: right and it's just really sad too about the house that um that it wasn't saved preserved or something and um I found another article from the Cincinnati Post from 1948 that there was a man named John Bauer that bought the, the house the oversized house in Seville and um it just, it was putting in him um, in financial straits because it cost so much to heat, it was drafty, it was, um, they uh, were just freezing all the time in the winter because it just wasn't very well insulated or anything else. So I guess maybe building a house at that time, at that size, maybe everything didn't fit together the way it was supposed to be, or, you know, it was an old house anyway, so he just tore it down and built a new one on top of it. So, yeah. Um, it's just unfortunate.
0: You know, it is. We live, uh, I live in Barberton, and mm-hmm. there was a very big debate back in the 60s about whether to try to save the mansion that had been built by the town founder, O.C. Mm-hmm. Barber. And they ended up tearing it down. And part of the problem then was nobody could figure out how to financially support that house. You know, it was big. It would have been expensive. Who had that kind of money? How would you make money back to keep supporting it year to year? And so they ended up tearing it down. And somebody back then had made the comment, it's too bad we can't just board it all up and leave it sit there until a smarter generation comes around. Absolutely. And when you were saying that about his farmhouse, I was thinking that like, wouldn't that have been a cool if somebody could have just boarded it up and waited till somebody smarter came along that could figure out how to preserve it. Because that's a house I would go visit.
3: Uh, yeah. You know, as absolutely. a tourist. Yeah. You could and, totally uh, see
0: that being an attraction.
3: <laughs> and just being from Newark and things too, we, we had a lot of, uh, Hopewell and Adina mounds um, back there from the ancient tribes. They were all over the countryside, I guess, there and things too. Now there's just a couple of earthworks left because people would just plow them under, you know, to build their houses on and things. Um, especially too, I'd heard stories from growing up there that, you know, once the, the Indian Wars out west and the, you know, the Wild West, 1870s through up through 1900, that people were upset about the Native Americans in the west, that so they just would plow under these mounds newark and things even though it had nothing to do with uh one with the other so
0: and now we have such respect for that mm-hmm. you know ancient history but it's too late because right, we yeah. let them go yeah you know i was in a it was i think it was a golf course isn't there down in newark like a golf course where yeah. the mounds, part there's part of the mounds or like it part of the golf course?
3: Yes, I caddied there when I was 15. So. Who's that right? <laughs> oh, wow. And it was so strange, Paula, because we would sit on those mounds, we'd walk over top of them, everything else, you know, with with bags for doctors, lawyers, you know, just people with, uh, here we are, these 15-year-old kids just walking over top of these mounds and just, I, I don't know, it just it just makes me kind of ill right now thinking about it because it just was... There's no understanding of what, what yeah. that meant.
0: Are right. they protected now? I mean, do they have signs now saying "Don't walk on this"? Or do people still walk on them?
3: Yeah, they people hit balls off of them. You know, if you get yeah. ball stuck in the mound, there'd be somebody cussing about, "Ah, it's my ball stuck on the mound." So, ball but, but there's, the mound. there's a cart path that go over top of these mounds too. You can drive right over top of them. So, this is Alex Hastings, the host of Ohio versus the World, an American History podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments.
1: When you said uh, Ohio vs. the World, we did some damage.
3: So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World
2: makes history fun again.
3: Hey, one good thing, I guess, though, is that um, the country club's lease is going to be up, I guess, in the next few years. It might be three to five years or something. They're just going to abandon it, so it's going to become a park now. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that, you know, I kind of just wondering what happened to all of Martin and Anna's stuff. I know a lot of Anna was able to uh, give a lot of her jewels and clothing and her Bible and things to family, and it, I know some of her great. Uh, nieces and nephews and stuff have some of her belongings but as far as Martin um, she, uh, she said that she just really didn't even know what happened to everything all of his wealth and you know what what happened to the uniforms the you know all the stuff that supposedly he had big sales and stuff at his farm at, at certain points and you know maybe just got rid of some things but she died in 1940 without a a gravestone. She basically did not have anything. Um, she had no family. She didn't have any siblings, no children. And uh, you're
0: talking about Martin's second wife?
3: Yes, Annette. Yeah. Annette. Yeah. Her great great niece, or great 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 niece, from Erie, Pennsylvania, just in 2016, um, was able to purchase a, a headstone for her and and uh, was able to mark her grave.
0: Oh, so she's got a marker now.
3: She does, yeah.
0: Is she at the Mount Hill Cemetery where uh, Martin and Anna are?
3: No, she uh, she's in Erie, so it's Erie, Pennsylvania. Oh, Erie. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she must have been from there originally. I think. Uh, I think her father was a pastor, and that's when they actually moved to Seville when she was 29 or something. But yeah, she was originally from Erie. That's just sad too mm-hmm. that you know she didn't. She died without having anything either. So. Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, if anybody listening to this knows where some of this stuff ended up, by all means, write us feedback at com, and we will uh, share the information on an update episode and, and let folks know it, which you, I'd love to know that this stuff still exists.
3: Yes, yes, that would be just a mm-hmm. fantastic find.
0: Absolutely. Craig, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yes, thanks for having me on, Paul and Steve. It was very enjoyable.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
0: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist, Nick Frank from Youngstown, Ohio. Nick has recently been studying many great jazz musicians, and that has led him to work on a full album that just came out July 18. It's called Isness. And the fun thing about this album is that it uses tons of local talent. The song we're featuring tonight, for instance, features nine musicians behind the various horns, percussions, and keyboards, including Nathan, Jesse, Ian, Gabriel, Alexander, Santino, Justin George, and of course Nick. Nick said the inspiration for River Run Reprise came from the concept of Finnegan's Wake a book by famed author James Joyce, the idea being that we are dropped into an ever-flowing river of life, often adrift and not in control. But if you allow yourself to accept the chaos and let it push you through without resistance, you'll reach a greater state of clarity. So look for Nick Frank Music on Facebook and follow him, you'll get updates on his work and probably on the entire jazz scene in Youngstown.
1: Well, let's have another listener, River Run Reprise by Nick Frank. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautix, Daniel Birch, and Adoran for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries.